Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 13. And uh, if you are new with us, what we do is we, we open up the Bible, we work through it sort of section by section. Uh, we believe that when you approach the Scripture this way, you keep the text in the context, you're able to uh, rightly understand and do what God uh, wants us to understand and do. So we've been in John's Gospel for a little while, a little over uh, a year, and we've, uh, you know, what we do is we, because we spend a long time in one book, we kind of go through different series while, while staying in the same book. So we're in a new series called No Greater Love, which is a phrase that comes right from the mouth of Jesus, who said that, uh, that, that no man has a greater love. There's no greater love than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. And um, so we're, we're entering into the last sort of seven chapters, the last section part of John's gospel, and we're going to see that love of Jesus on display. It is a love that uh, will lead him ultimately to die uh, on a cross. Over the last uh, couple of weeks or so, I've had unplanned conversations, unexpected conversations with people of a variety of different religions and religious backgrounds. I was talking to a, a young Hindu lady uh, recently as she was uh, making my ice cream or actually rolling my ice cream. This was at uh, Sweet Charlie's on 72, and I'm, I'm talking with a la- young lady there, and she kind of shared unpromptedly how uh, even though she comes from a devout Hindu background, her parents allowed her this last year to put up a Christmas tree and even though they don't believe in Christmas or celebrate Christmas, this was a really big deal to her. It was an encouragement to her. And we had a very, uh, a very I thought, a very helpful, meaningful conversation. A couple of days after that, I, I got into an unexpected conversation with a, a young lady who was a Mormon who said that she was a Mormon. She just moved here from, uh, from Utah. I was kind of trying to figure out life uh, in North Alabama. And then before that, just recently, got into a conversation with a couple of young men uh, who were Muslims. These are guys that I play ball with at the Y, and we just started talking about faith and, and their background and some of their habits and practices. And, and one of the things you realize if you engage people in North Alabama is, you know, even though we live in the Bible Belt, there are people from all different religions around. And when you have those conversations with people of different religions, you, you, you realize a couple of things. One, there are some things that are unique to every religion. And there are some things that actually seem to be pretty common among every religion. Now, there are things that are unique to, of course, unique to the Christian faith. Uh, for example, the Trinity and uh, the substitutionary life and death of Jesus, the historical resurrection, uh, the virgin birth, salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. These are, these are distinctions of the Christian faith. But there's one thing that's not really unique to the Christian faith at all, and that is the command to love. In fact, you realize that every religion, every single religion, has in some form the command to love. Mormons are commanded to love. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are commanded to love. Uh, Buddhists are instructed to love. In fact, there are four kinds of manifestations of love uh, in the Buddhist doctrine, loving kindness, compassion, gratitude, and equanimity, that is treating people fairly and rightly. Uh, Sikhs are commanded to love. According to their doctrine, only those who love will actually attain to God. Muslims are commanded to love. It was Muhammad who is recorded in the Hadith as saying, you will not enter paradise until you believe, and you will not believe until you love. 
So the command, of love, command to love is something common virtually to all religions, and it's not unique to Christianity. It's not special to Christianity. Of course, the idea of loving other people is not even unique to religion. In fact, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone. If you just pulled someone off the street and asked them about love, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who disagrees with the notion that we should be more loving, that we should love everybody. How many songs are written about this, that, uh, that love is actually the secret or the answer to what ails humanity? The Beatles, perhaps in the most memorable, if not repetitive way, declared this. All you need is love, love. All you need is love, love. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. So again, it's this idea that we should love one another is actually a universal idea. It's not specific to any religion or really even specific to religious people. The notion that love is what we need. But there are some aspects of this love, the love that we have for one another, the love that we've received, that are actually they're unique to Christianity. There's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect of love that Jesus talks about that's very different than the sort of love we see in other religions. And we're going to see three of those aspects this morning. We're going to see the object of our love, the power for our love, and the impact of our love. So the object, power, and impact will be in John chapter 13. Uh, let me start by reading... Actually, the whole section we'll cover is 31 through 35, so let me read it in full. The word of the Lord reads this way. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it's the night before Jesus would die on a cross. It's Thursday evening. And as we saw last week, Jesus has been in this very intimate gathering, this intimate meal with his disciples, uh, during which he washed their feet. And over the conversation of the meal, Jesus actually reveals to his disciples who the one is who will betray him. It's Judas, one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples. So what Jesus says is the one that I'm going to dip this piece of bread in oil, and the person to whom I give this bread... He is the one who will betray me. And he actually goes through that very exercise. Now, the disciples, they're still, they don't really understand. They're still processing. They're still trying to get their mind around this suffering and death that Jesus has talked about. And they don't really understand even the whole nature of this betrayal. But Jesus has this discussion with them. And he gives the bread to Judas. And shortly after that, Judas will leave their gathering and kind of go off into the darkness. Verse 13 tells us that when he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus sees this as the perfect opportunity to kind of go deeper with his disciples, really get into this relationship that he has with the Father. He talks about himself being glorified by the Father and God the Father being glorified in him. In fact, five times there's a reference to someone either being glorified or glorifying someone else. And, um, and I really had that, I had a discussion on this in 
today's message, but I realize as we get into John 17, some of the same language is going to come into play. So we'll talk more about the, the nature of the Father's glory and the Son's glory when we get into John 17, and how there's no, there's no jealousy within the Trinity, only self-giving love. But for now, I want to look at this command that Jesus issues. After alerting his disciples to the reality that he will not be with them much longer, he says in verse 34, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. Now, when we read that, what's the first thing that really jumps out us, that stands out, is if you've read the Old Testament, we read that, we say, well, that's not really a new commandment at all. Like, that's a really, really old commandment. Why would Jesus call this a new commandment? In fact, this goes all the way back to, of course, ancient Israel. It goes back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It's one of the oldest commands in the Scriptures, going back to Leviticus 19, 18, which reads, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's a very old command. We, we read that, we say, now how could, why would Jesus call it a new command? Again, it goes back to what it is that's unique about the love that Jesus is talking about and really those three, those three aspects that we're going to unpack this morning. Again, the first thing that's new about Jesus version of this command is the object of the love he's commanding. So you go back to ancient Near Eastern culture and you, we read about this command of Leviticus where the people are to love their neighbor. Um, they were commanded to love their neighbor, but this was actually a reference to their Jewish neighbor. And so this command was about loving your Jewish neighbor, the fellow people of Israel. Now sure, the people of Israel were to take note of the strangers and aliens in, among them, but their love was to be directed toward only their fellow Israelites. In fact, this is made clear in the verse that I just read where Moses writes, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the neighbor, you go back to Leviticus, the neighbor here is actually a reference to a member of one's own physical ethnic family. There's nothing new, of course, unusual about that, is there? We know uh, that... Of course, those who are part of the same family, those who are part of the same physical family should, should love each other. When I was a kid, between the ages of, I don't know, roughly 10 and 14, every year on the week after Christmas, I would visit my, my granddad in Middle Tennessee. Now, if you've been around, if you were here several months ago, this is the same granddad that he left his wife, uh, my, my grandmother, his wife of 25 years, and kind of ran off with his dental assistant, and it really just course, you know, shocked the family and created all kinds of problems, but uh, my granddad was a dentist uh, for many years, well-respected in the community, but by the time I'd become a teenager, even a preteen, he'd lost everything, everything he owned to alcohol and gambling, mostly gambling. He was, he was uh, addicted to gambling, and so we would go visit him the week after Christmas. He lived alone in this musky, sort of dimly lit house at the end of a gravel road, out in the middle of nowhere in Middle Tennessee, and uh, it was hard to get to. Once we got there, it was not the most pleasant uh, surrounding. Um, but in his house, he had multiple TVs, and they were connected to this big satellite in his front yard. Now, when I say big satellite, I'm not talking about a little dish that you, know, that you attach to the side of your house. I'm talking about 
It looked like a flying saucer had spiraled out of control and crashed into his lawn. So he had no, there was no front yard. There was just this big dish. Well, if you know anything about sports, you know that the week after Christmas is bowl week in college football. And so I would go in. I hadn't seen my granddad in a year. I would go in. I would say hi to him. He wouldn't even look at me. He, his, his eyes were fixed on the TVs. He, would not, he had a lot of money riding on these games illegally, and so he paid very close attention to the various sporting events. He would not engage in conversation. Um, we could not get his attention. He would not even look away for a moment from the TVs. Now, as a 10, 11-year-old, I mean, this was very sad to me. I hadn't seen my grandfather in, in a year, and so it was very sad to me not only to see this once strong and vibrant man reduced to desperation, anxiety, and poverty, but it was also sad that here's someone in my own family who really had no interest in me, no, no love for me. And again, as an 11-year-old, I thought, this is not how it's supposed to be in a family. A family's supposed to love one another. Actually, this is really helping me talk through this. I feel like I need a couch. I should lie down and just, this is really therapeutic for me. My, my grandfather didn't love me, and that really hurt me. You know, he wouldn't pay attention to me. And I realize that when you talk about people in the same family, the, people should actually care about one another. They should love one another. So the idea that we should love those in our family, those who are part of our same clan, so to speak, there's nothing new about that. It's actually very old news. But what Jesus does is actually extend the direction or the object of that love now the love that we are to demonstrate is for one another, Jesus says, by which he means every believer in Jesus Christ, regardless of ethnic, racial, religious, economic distinction. We are to love every single believer in Jesus Christ. That's what that word, that phrase one another is talking about. He's talking to the eleven directly and pointedly, and he says to them, you are to love one another. Now, there are some commentators who, who want to broaden this out and say that by one another, what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about the whole world, even our enemies. And the truth is, we are commanded to love our enemies. We are instructed to love those who persecute us, those who are against us. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. We have the great privilege of kind of being a fly on the wall, so to speak, in this, this very personal, intimate gathering where Jesus tells his disciples that, that the main direction of their love, horizontally speaking, is toward fellow disciples, toward one another. Now, please hear me on this. Yes, we are commanded to love everyone, strangers, neighbors, acquaintances, even enemies. And Jesus is not overriding that. He's not diminishing that. But here he's being more specific. He's saying, particularly, I want Christians to be especially loving, especially sacrificial, especially caring toward other Christians. Now, here's our first point as it relates to the object of the love that Christ commands. Christian love is universal and all-embracing, to be sure. But it takes on a particular intensity toward one another. Now, Jesus is not saying that we're the kind of in crowd who doesn't care about other people. He's not saying that we ought to exclude other people. 
He's not saying that, that other people should feel unloved by us. Of course not. But he is saying there is a specific kind of love that is demonstrated toward the believing family. It's a love that manifests in carrying one another's burdens, in praying for one another, in pursuing one another relationally, going after one another, building relationships. It's a love that manifests in suffering with one another, sharing the burdens and the struggles of our fellow, of our siblings in Christ. It's a love that manifests in correcting one another and receiving correction, forgiving one another. It's a love that manifests, and I think maybe this is the most powerful thing, in the way that we repent toward one another. But this is kind of hard, isn't it? I mean, this is a hard thing to do, loving everyone in the believing family, because just like the physical family, in the spiritual family, in the faith family, you have some, just like in your normal family, you have some crazy uncles, some obnoxious cousins, some unruly children, some overly affectionate grandmothers. You have those people in the faith family as well as in your physical family. And so we might as well admit it. We might as well be honest with each other. Some people are actually harder to love than others, aren't they? Some people are actually more difficult to love than others. Now, I'm looking out at you. I don't have anybody in mind, right? But this is true. We might as well be honest about it. Some people are harder to love than others. So how do we love the difficult members of our spiritual family? Well, this is where the next phrase comes in, verse 34. Jesus says, love one another. And this is the most important phrase here that will follow. Just as I have loved you. This is the most important phrase in this section. It's not the command to love one another, although that's important. It's a statement by Jesus, just as I have loved you. Now, the, phrase, the, the, the two words, just as, are, it's one Greek word, kathos, and it can be translated, interpreted in two different ways. The first way that this word kathos can be translated is in, is in a way that indicates um, comparative, an example. So in, in that sense, it would be Jesus saying, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. In other words, I want your love for one another to be compared to or to look like or to resemble the love that I have for you. Love one another in the same way, in a way that's compared to the way that I love you. And I think that's okay. I don't have any issue with anybody who takes that interpretation, but I don't think it best fits the context here. There's another way that this Greek word can be interpreted, and that's rather than a comparative sense, it's in a causal sense. In other words, rather than read this as Jesus saying, love one another in the same manner that I have loved you, it would be Jesus saying, love one another from or out of or empowered by my love for you. And I think the second interpretation is best, and there are plenty of people way smarter than I am that hold the same view, plenty of Greek scholars and so on. One theologian writes this, it is important to notice that the power for the disciples' love for one another does not come from the disciples themselves. It comes from the preceding love of Christ for them, a love they already know and experience. So we, we read the command. Jesus says, there's a new command I give you. We say, wait a second, that's an old command. But here's what's new about it. What's especially new is the power 
that actually moves and enables that love. Here's our second point. Christ's love for us not only informs our love, which of course it does, it enables our love for others. Christ's love for us not only informs our love, it shows us how to love other people, but I would say more importantly, it actually enables our love for others. Yes, the love that Christ Jesus has shown us, the humble sacrifice, is evidenced by His foot washing. We saw that last week. And ultimately, of course, the greatest demonstration is death on a cross. The self-giving nature of Christ's love for us certainly gives us an example to follow. There's no doubt about that. I'm not disputing that and I'm not demeaning that. Absolutely. The self-giving, humble, sacrificial love of Christ gives us an example to follow. But more importantly, His love for us actually locked in on us before we were born, poured out on us when we were undeserving, and quickening our dead hearts to make us alive spiritually. His love for us is actually the force or the power for our love for others. Now, here's what I mean. If you're in Christ this morning, so God's brought you to a place sometime in your life where you've recognized your own rebellion, your own sinfulness, you have turned from your sin, your self-reliance, you put your faith in Jesus. If you are in Christ this morning, as we saw last week, you've been cleansed. So there's no sin that God is holding against you. You are completely clean. It's not because of your record. It's because of Christ's record actually credited to you by faith. You are completely clean. This morning when you come to church, maybe you had a fight with your, your spouse or you got into it with your kids or, or, or you couldn't, you know, you slept in, you're running around, you were, you were saying things you shouldn't. Still, positionally, before God, in Christ, you are clean. And maybe your sin is way worse than a sarcastic comment this morning. Maybe you have that deep sin, that, that sin that nobody else knows about. Even so, if you're in Christ this morning, you are clean. So we know, as we saw last week, those in Christ are cleansed. You've been forgiven of all your past sins, will never be condemned again. Your slate is clean. But you've not just been cleansed. You have been made completely new. And central to your newness is your union with Christ. If you are in Christ, you are united to Christ. You are connected to Christ. Now, our union with Christ is this big and, and mysterious doctrine that has all kinds of facets to it and ramifications. But what it means, again, it means a lot of things, but it means that not only is His righteousness ours by faith, not only is His record ours, but His supernatural presence is our joy. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no joy in the world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. And what he's saying there is, in a way that transcends our limited understanding, in a way that we can't totally and fully get our minds around, we are actually really united with Christ. We are truly joined to the crucified, resurrected, incarnate person of Jesus, and His power is at work in us. His power in enabling us to obey. His power in preserving us through trials as we depend on His grace. And His power in giving us the ability to love. 
When we find ourselves unable to love one another, it's either because we're relying on our own resources, which is very easy to do, isn't it? Or we have forgotten about the love that we have received. Some of you have heard, I'm sure, that Janine and I are going to be adding to our family. Not in the way you might think, by the way. <laughs> we're, uh, we're too old for that. Um, but addition by marriage, um, a couple of weeks ago, our oldest son proposed to his girlfriend at Laguna Beach in California, and they're still just sort of walking on cloud nine. Two days ago, his fiancee, Emily, posted this picture on Instagram, which I just thought, how cute is that? Look at that. It's, and it just says, I can't wait. Still can't believe I get to marry you. It's just so sweet. Well, this means in July that I'll have the privilege of officiating uh, the wedding of my firstborn son. And uh, I don't know, I've probably done, I don't know if I should say hundreds, maybe hundreds, at least dozens of weddings. And, and I, you know, I follow kind of the traditional approach, but there's one thing that I do different than tradition. Now, you find you have the traditional wedding, and it usually starts with the, the so-called exchange, which is who gives this woman to be married to this man, her, her mother and I, and so on. And then you move from there to the, the welcome and then the opening prayer. And then once you get past that, there's usually a scripture reading. And then there's this part that's known traditionally, and just about every pastor does it, and that's called the charge to the couple. And that's the, the homily or whatever. And it's that part of the, the, the uh, service when the, the pastor charges or exhorts the husband, the would-be husband, the, the groom, to love his wife in a sacrificial way. And he exhorts, he charges the, the bride to, be, to submit to her husband and so on. And you know, it comes from Ephesians 5. And they usually read from Ephesians 5. It's the charge to the couple. But this is where I deviate from tradition. What I do instead of the charge to the couple is what I call encouragement to the couple. Rather than focus on Ephesians 5.25a, which just about every minister does, and that's fine. It's husbands love your wives. I actually want to camp out on the part that many pastors skip, Ephesians 5.25b, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Because I could tell the groom, look, if you want a good marriage... You know, look, be sacrificial for your wife. Love your wife sacrificially. And I could give a long list of ways that he can do that. Take out the trash the first time she asks. Keep the gas tank at least half full. Go shopping with her even when there's nothing she wants to buy. And I could say, look, there are all kinds of things. There are, there are all kinds of ways that you could... I use that on Wednesday. I'm getting a double dose of it. I use it on Wednesday and now Sunday too. Uh, but there are all kinds of ways that you can you could be sacrificial and love your wife in a sacrificial way. And I could go through that whole list. But here's the problem. And I'm not you know, judging anybody who uses that approach, but here's the problem. There's no power in that. There's no power in that. And I could tell the bride, look, support and come under your husband's leadership and encourage him with your words and, and align yourself with his leadership philosophy and and support him emotionally and physically. And those are all good things. Those are all good things. But there's no power in any of those challenges. What I want to do instead is remind them, you know what? This is not fun to hear, but marriage is going to be hard. Marriage is going to be difficult. And there are going to be times when you don't want to be sacrificial. There are going to be times when you don't even want to be around this person. 
There will be times that you don't want to make the effort. Frankly, there will be times when you blow it and you fail and you just want to give up. But Christ loved you in such a way that he laid down his life for you so that your failures don't condemn you. They don't define you. In fact, when you do fail, you are still loved by your heavenly Father. You're not alone. The Son of God has presented you perfect before God by faith. So even on your worst days, you're loved by God. Even on your worst days, there's no fear of God sort of shrinking away from you. You are forever loved by God who's moved heaven and earth to bring you to himself. You are actually free to love because you've been so loved by God, even if it's not returned immediately. In fact, the risen Christ lives inside of you. You are united to him. You are connected with him. And so even on those days, you don't think it's possible to forgive. Even on those days, you don't want to show love. Even on those days, you don't feel anything. Christ is in you. And he will strengthen you. And he will sustain you. And he will empower you to love. He is the source of your love. He is the fuel for your love. Your marriage will last not because of your white knuckling or because of your just trying so hard to make it last, but because of Christ, his faithfulness. If you'll just depend on him and rest in his love, you'll find that you're actually able to love in ways and at times you never ever imagined. Now, there's actually power in that reality. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Christ's love for us is, is the power for our love and the only way for us to love one another. Thus, Jesus says, love one another just as or out of or from or fueled by my love for you. Now, let's look at the, the final aspect, the impact. Look at verse 35 again. Jesus says, by this, of course, a reference to the love that we have for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we've looked at the object of the love that God commands. And yeah, we're supposed to love everyone. We're supposed to love even our enemies. But that love for one another is the one that actually burns with a white hot intensity. It's the one that, that Christ is commanding here. That's the object of the love. Then we've looked at the power for that love. That is the love that we've been shown. And now we look at the impact of that love. I guess if I were to ask the question, what are Christians best known for in today's world? I might get a variety of answers. I might get for their outspoken political views. Now, certainly, I know professing Christians, and this is their they are sort of one-trick ponies. This is all they think about is political views. Certainly, this is the way some people view Christians. Certainly, some people would say for their strict moral rules, all the things they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Others may say for their narrow way of thinking, for their dogmatism. You know, they just, they just think that they just have it all right and they won't listen to anybody and, and they just think they know everything. Others might say for their aggressive, in-your-face evangelism. I don't think that's happening so much anymore, to be honest with you. 
think other, some of the other religions that I mentioned at the beginning here are actually far more aggressive. There's a reason that uh, Islam is growing faster than Christianity. But I think some people might say, well, it's because of their aggressive evangelism. But I wonder who might answer that question. When you think about Christians, what do you think of? I wonder who might answer it this way. You know, Christians really love each other. I, don't, I can't make sense of it. They really love each other. If no one would answer the question that way, then we're doing something wrong. Jesus says that the way that we as Christians love one another will show all people that we are truly Jesus' disciples. It is the love that we demonstrate toward one another that will spark a sense of curiosity, interest, intrigue, a willingness to be engaged among those who are not in Christ. And this is actually how it was in the second century. We, we set up John's gospel over a year ago. We talked about the historical background and authorship and all of that. Well, it was about 100 years after John wrote his gospel, roughly, that the persecution of Christians actually increased uh, dramatically. You know, during the first century, there was real, of course, persecution, but it was more sort of sporadic. It would pop up. In the second century, persecution was intensified as what was initially known as this kind of bizarre sect of people called the followers of the way began to spread and grow and, and make their way out into new regions and new countries. And so persecution grew. Just to be called a Christian was sufficient reason for a death warrant in some places. And yet in the middle of that persecution, here's what's fascinating. Uh, the church continued to grow. And, and one of the primary reasons for the continued growth of the church was just how tight-knit the Christian community was in, in the middle of their suffering. In fact, uh, in his second century work called Apology, Tertullian recorded that pagans were amazed at how close the Christians were. He wrote that this was one common refrain. See how they love one another, how they are ready to die for one another. And this is one of the reasons the church spread. Some 1,700 years later, in the mid-1900s, Francis Schaeffer would write, love is the final apologetic. Now, an apology, this word doesn't mean you're saying I'm sorry for something. In this word, in this sense, apology is, means a defense or a, the reason behind. And what he's saying, this sort of apology is the best defense of the Christian faith, the way we love one another. Here's our final point. Nothing gives greater evidence of the existence of God or the power of His salvation than the way we love one another. Nothing gives greater evidence of the existence of God or the power of His salvation than the way we love one another. Now, this is not to take away from, of course, the power of the spoken gospel. The gospel is news. The gospel is news. You can't live the gospel. The gospel must be proclaimed, announced, declared, heralded, all those things. So I'm not taking away from the articulated gospel or the gospel must be shared. But if our articulated message, if the message that we are communicating with our words, it is not backed by, it doesn't come from a context of love for one another, it'll be nothing more than somebody banging on a cymbal or pounding a piano who doesn't know how to play. It's going to be nothing more than an irritation. If our, love, if our message is not accompanied by love, Several years ago, I was asked to be part of a pastor's conference just south of Chicago. It was sponsored by a group that I didn't know and had never heard of and hosted by a church that I wasn't aware of. 
but they sent me a brochure and they asked me to be part of a workshop. And the theme of the conference was come out from among them and be ye separate. So that gave me a little bit of an idea what I was talking about, looking uh, forward to. Um, but I opened the brochure and it said that all conference speakers and participants will wear a jacket and tie at all events. So that was sufficient enough for me to say uh, uh, no thank you. Um, but this, and it wasn't, I don't have no problem with wearing a suit and tie necessarily, but it didn't take me long to understand what was behind this. The whole idea of coming out from among them and being separate, the whole idea of a Christian being different to them was manifested in how a Christian dresses, what they wear, what they watch, what they listen to. And yeah, we're told that a Christian will be different, but Jesus says it's not really so much about that. What makes a Christian different, what makes us stand out is how we love each other. You know what's so different about Christians? They actually forgive one another. They don't hold endless, lifelong grudges. You know what's so different about Christians? They actually repent to one another when they hurt each other. You know what's so incredibly crazy different about Christians? They're actually willing to sacrifice and put someone else ahead of their own interests out of love. This is what makes Christians stand out, the way we love one another. They esteem one another more highly than themselves. They actually notice one another. We notice each other. We're not so caught up in our own problems that we're oblivious to everyone else. In other words, rather than me regarding myself as kind of being the center of the universe and everyone else being little satellites that sort of orbit around me, I actually think of serving you as one of my primary delights and, in fact, one of the reasons that I've been redeemed, to serve you and to love you. Maybe you have needs that I can help with. Today, I'm going to make you more important than my agenda. And I'll be very candid with you. I'm preaching to myself first here. Because my agenda for the day, my agenda for the week, can trump everything else at times. But you know, when we love one another, we say, you know what? I'm going to put aside my agenda. I'm going to put aside my to-do list. I'm going to put aside whatever it is that's on my mind and I'm actually going to notice you, and I'm going to pay attention to you, and I'm going to care about you, and I'm going to invest in you. Now, it sounds like a lot, doesn't it? But think of the Lord Jesus. Here he is with the universe to run, the glory of his Father to enjoy, yet he gives it up to be born in poverty in the most unimpressive and, and yea, scandalous ways imaginable, born to an unwed teenage girl. He does this ridiculous, disgusting thing of stooping to wash his disciples' feet. This incredible act of humility. And it's a humility that would actually move him to submit to the mockery and the taunting and the nails of a cross, which was, by the way, the most shameful way to die. Yes, he is our example, but he is also the source and the power for our love. And it's not only about what he has done and what he is doing, but it's about what he will do. He is even now interceding for us. He is even now praying for us. He is even now preparing for us a great feast 
that we will enjoy with Him in perfect harmony, with the, with the absence of all sin and conflict, where there, is no, there are no sniffles and there is no cancer and there is no lingering cough and there is no death, we will feast in the house of Zion and we will say together with great joy, our God has done great things. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you this morning as the only true and living God. And Father, we ask this morning that you would give us, that you would give us a greater understanding of your love and you would stir within our hearts this hope for the future, this real, solid, unwavering hope that not only have you loved us and not only do you love us, but because you love us, you have something incredible prepared for us. Father, will you give us the grace to believe and great joy in the reality that one day we will feast in the house of Zion in the new Jerusalem where we will enjoy Christ, we will enjoy one another, and you will be our everlasting and greatest joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.